Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last year, Saudi Arabia let women drive. Earlier this month, Saudi Arabia began to dismantle its long-criticized guardianship system for women. But women activists who advocate for these changes are still locked up. Lou Jane Haslul is the most prominent. Her family revealed months ago that she'd been tortured in prison. Yesterday, Haslul's family said that she was offered a chance to leave prison if she videotaped a statement that announced she'd not been tortured in prison. According to Al Haslul's family, she ripped the document and refused. Let's talk about what's happening with Saudi Arabia and its prisoners with Khalid Abu Al-Fadl. He's a professor of law at UCLA Law School and is the founder of the Usuli Institute. It's an Islamic think tank to counter ignorance and extremism. Thanks a lot for joining us again, Khalid. My my pleasure. I wonder if you could make a little sense of this for us, because I think most people look at this and say, what is Saudi Arabia doing? They are... Um, liberalizing things for women at the same time that they are imprisoning women and torturing them. And, uh, you know, obviously we have uh, uh, a crown prince here who is a pretty ruthless fellow, as he demonstrated in the Khashoggi affair. But um, I still don't think that people understand uh, what goes on here. Well, uh, the the main problem is that um, – MBS, the, the the crown prince, envisions himself as a totalitarian ruler. Uh, he he wants, uh, for various reasons, uh, uh, some domestic, most of them foreign. Uh, he wants to grant women more rights, but at the same time that he wants to do that. He does not want any of his power to be compromised uh, or shared or decreased. And part and parcel of that is that uh, um, not to allow for individuals who demand rights, like Lujin Hazlul. And so it's a, it's an, it's a situation where he is willing to give citizens uh, relatively m- more rights as long as these rights do not um, decrease his own powers and do not compromise his own absolute discretion w- within the uh, institutions of the state. And that that's basically we are where we are. And people People like Lujain Hazlul um, has a, a rather well-documented uh, legacy of being an independent and outspoken advocate uh, for rights that would set limits on the state. On, in, in one way or another. And Lou Jane Hassel years ago fo- uh, did a video of herself driving a car and, and things that were uh, provocative to the Saudi regime. Yes, and it's not... I mean, she did not just drive a car, but um, she wanted more rights for women in the context of setting limits on the rights of the state, or the powers of the state, rather, and including the powers of the absolute monarch. And that's where a lot of the advocates who are in prison right now clash with the state, because the state, as much as it's willing to win favor with the West by liberalizing various things like music and concerts and all of that, but 
it is not willing to give up any of its own absolute powers. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. She was uh, abducted a couple years ago when she was taken into custody, basically yes. from, a, from another yes. country and, yes. and brought back. Yes, I believe she was coming uh, She through the Emirates. Um, and um, the, the Emirates and, I mean, other Gulf countries often cooperate with Saudi Arabia in um, – Turning over, I mean, not even officially in any way, but literally, they're they're grabbed from airports, from um, uh, uh, streets sometimes, and just flown to Saudi Arabia. But um, since her initial disappearance, and then the ability of the family, uh, with the help of various. Uh, advocates to to verify that she in fact was in Saudi custody. Um, increasingly, more and more very disturbing reports emerged about her treatment in Saudi custody, and therein is the problem. I'm talking with Khalid Abu El Fadl. He is a professor of law at UCLA Law School, and we're talking about the case right now of Lou Jane Haslul, who uh, yesterday, according to her family, ripped up a document that uh, they, the Saudis had offered her that said if she could leave prison, if she videotaped a statement that announced that she hadn't been tortured in prison. Um, you know, I wanted to say something about. Um, a common denominator with the Khashoggi affair. And one of the people who was involved in the Khashoggi affair and was uh, was the key player, apparently, and was a right-hand man to the crown prince is also implicated here. Um, could you tell us uh, where he is now or what, what, what the, what's the story with uh, this individual? Yes, well, uh, this fellow actually continues he, he sort of um, MBS put him placed him out of public eyesight for a little bit after the Khashoggi affair but he has re-emerged um, rather very strongly in uh, uh, reassuming a lot of his previous functions uh, it, it's an odd thing because the, the, this uh, man uh, doesn't have any qualifications, and his reputation in Saudi Arabia is that of a thug. But he has the um, complete confidence of and trust of MBS. Uh, he's not just involved in abusing political prisoners, but he is also involved in setting uh, Saudi policy vis-a-vis Yemen, vis-a-vis uh, -vis Libya, um, he's been involved in Saudi policy towards Egypt, uh, Bahrain. Um, so it, it's an odd situation, but the, the time and time again, through um, it, it has come out that he is personally, personally involved in the torturing of political prisoners, and he was personally involved in uh, the torturing and sexual abuse of Lujan um, was very grotesque and gruesome details. And this is Saad al-Qahtani who we're talking yes. about here. And, he's, Qahtani, yeah. and he is, um, uh, you know, and he apparently was right there in the middle of the Khashoggi affair and uh, right there in the middle of, of this, in, right there in the middle of uh, Saudi foreign policy. Um, now, I wanted to talk about another case with you. And there was an article in The Guardian uh, yesterday, and it was by the son of a uh, Islamic scholar in Saudi Arabia, uh, Salman Aloda. And, and he, he is um, someone who's been in prison for some time now. He has uh, 14 million followers on Twitter, and he mentioned that he thought Saudi Arabia should patch things up with Qatar, and, and that now he faces a death sentence in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Yeah, he, this is uh, just, I mean, another one of these atrocious um, human rights violations. The, the, the Salman al-Oda is not just one of the most popular Saudi religious authorities, but he is also one of the most tolerant uh, moderate and open-minded. I mean, his, his theology 
on everything from um, uh, Muslim attitudes towards Christians, Jews, or any other religions, um, uh, Muslims' attitudes towards atheists, towards the West, towards democracy. Um, and uh, it's, it's quite clear that what MBS fears is this man's popularity uh, the main thing is that he is in favor of a constitutional monarchy. While he supports the monarchy, he has in the past urged for constitutional limits on the powers of the monarch. Um, um, and that's sort of things that he has written in his books. Uh, and I think that's sort of a, the, why um, MBS targets him in particular. It's because of his popularity and because of his ideas uh, about a constitutional monarchy. But the main difference between him and Lujain Hazloul is uh, Saudi Arabia to, to this very day um, uh, insists officially it is demanding execution for Salman al-Oda. So, and if he goes to trial, uh, it's hard to imagine how he's going to be able to avoid the death sentence. Lejeune has been arrested, tortured, uh, but so far, we're not even sure what her charges are. We're not sure why she's in prison and why she's been tortured. And... Um, uh, there have been even no specific demands other than you're a troublemaker uh, during her the, the, her torture sessions. Now, um, Solomon Aldo's uh, situation seems different. He is affiliated or uh, inspired by the Awakening Movement, uh, the, the Sawa Movement in yeah. Saudi Arabia, which is uh, Muslim Brotherhood affiliated. Uh, is this a kettle of fish right there that, you know, being a part of this well, thing I mean, is... You know, the, the, the thing is, the Muslim Brotherhood label right now is, is used um, uh, as a way of, uh, of um, by, primarily by authoritarian states like, the, like Egypt, the UAE, and uh, Saudi to... Um, create anxiety in the West, to be quite honest. Um, uh, Salman al-Oda never officially belonged to the, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, in the in the context of the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, various Islamic organizations and um, movements influenced each other back and forth in a very fluid and dynamic way. And so... Um, Sure, Salman al-Oda met and had numerous discussions with someone like Yusuf al-Qardawi, who at one point used to officially belong to the Muslim Brotherhood, although he hasn't officially belonged to them in a long time. But Salman al-Oda at the same time, what a lot of people don't realize is that at the same time, he engaged in many debates with members of the Muslim Brotherhood and disagreed with particular theological ideas uh, and yet, the, the Saudi Arabia realizes quite clearly that the, the the that the only way to get the West to at least you know look the other way uh, when they arrest him and torture him, uh, if not execute him, is to slap the Brotherhood uh, label on him. So we have to be very careful with this because it's it's um, you know it's the same thing like the accusation of um, uh, Nazism or uh, white supremacy or um, uh, when we say someone is a fascist in the West. I mean you have to know a great deal about the facts uh, of political movements before you can just simply believe believe that label. And I'm not implying here that the Muslim Brotherhood is, is um, you know, uh, uh, I, I'm not among those who believe the Muslim Brotherhood is a terrorist organization. I think they've renounced political violence a long time ago. But nevertheless, uh, you know, I, I'm always in the human rights field. I'm quite concerned how that label is used to justify horrific human rights abuses against people. And uh, Salman Uda uh, definitely would fit the bill. And Salman Uda is, is someone who's being charged with, uh, under a 
pretext of like uh, a terrorism law, a law that was started to 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 prosecute terrorists. Yeah, and the the charges are like causing corruption on earth, um, insulting the royal, um, um, insulting the royal office, um, uh, spreading. Uh, doubts and seditious ideas about um, the the Saudi government. So they're all these, you know, very broad, vague accusations where you, literally anything under the sun could fit. You know, what does spreading corruption on the earth mean? There are he hasn't been charged with any violent activity. Um, he hasn't. Uh, so they're they're all what we would consider to be. Political crimes of ideas and thoughts, and you know, basically uh, erroneous thinking, uh, and maybe erroneous speech, and yet the Saudi government still, to this very day, insists uh, that um, he should be executed, uh, and and um, uh, a lot of people similarly situated to Salman Oda have expired in, in Saudi custody because the, the treatment is horrific uh, but um, you know that, that that's where we are and the uh, and the irony is that every time Saudi Arabia liberalizes its women policies like allowing women to travel in the human rights field we immediately worry that that will mean a simultaneously an intensification intensification of its yeah. abuses against other prisoners i should want to just add one really important thing i have to say uh has lude is um an Unbelievably brave human being. Uh, I mean, uh, um, so this policy that Saudi Arabia, uh, w- whenever uh, abuses come to the light, they they often resort to this exact same uh, policy where they force the prisoner to make some type of recording that they have not been tortured and and then allow them to be released, remain under some type of uh, home arrest and. And they ban them from travel, and this way they they just avoid the entire public scrutiny aspect of it. Um, Lujane is one of the very few people over the the past now, I'd say, decade that has refused to play ball. Um, and and I know that her treatment in custody just. Horrific. I mean, uh, in, in at so many levels, um, I uh, we're not sure if the sexual abuse continues. I, I we pray not. I hope not. But it just um, you just have to admire that type of uh, power and strength. Absolutely, it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh- Ultimately, is Saudi Arabia getting away with it? Uh, we saw the G20 meeting in June where uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was, his, was right there in the center of the picture, smiling with President Trump. And he is, um, you know, welcomed with open arms. I, uh, unfortunately, yes, they are getting away with it. Um, the, I've been in uh, just by the nature of my work. I, I, I often have an occasion to uh, interact with um, uh, people within the, the Saudi government at uh, different levels. And what I can tell you is that the attitude that is prevalent within the MBS administration is that as long as Trump likes us, and as long as Trump protects us, we really don't care whether Congress is unhappy or Europe is unhappy or uh, they, they don't even care about the, the rest of the Arab world at all, period. Um, and that's where, where a lot of the problem is. Uh, both MBZ and MBS, well, I, I would say MBZ, MBS, and CC of Egypt have this um, this attitude as long as the American administration has their back um, then all problems are solved 
and and that that's the the test the the real rub was the Khashoggi case uh, MBS worried a lot after Khashoggi but when he saw it's not going anywhere he he relaxed and um, let a lot of abuses go on unhampered Khaled Abu Afal is a professor of law at the UCLA Law School. He's founder of the Usuli Institute. It's an Islamic think tank to counter ignorance and extremism. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking Very about uh, human rights in Saudi Arabia. Thank you. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with former Worldview producer Joe Lindstroth, and we'll reminisce a bit about his time on Worldview and mark 25 years of Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so... No one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. For the 25th anniversary of Worldview, we are going back and talking to previous producers of the program who have gone on to bigger and better things than Worldview. And one of the people we're most fond of is Joe Lindstroth, who works at Michigan Radio now. He is a senior producer for Stateside, their daily uh, talk program in Michigan. And it is great to see you, Joe Lindstroth. Well, Jerome, this is an honor to be here. It really is. Now, uh, you came to us, you were um, somebody who was making a career transition, I remember. That's correct. You know, I like to joke when I was in graduate school for journalism, I was the only one with male pattern baldness. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's right. Yep. It was mid-30s. I went back to grad school. I did some reporting at Evanston at a newspaper there and just kind of fell in love with journalism and you know, needed to go back to school so I can get an internship at WBEZ. Yay. And you you were uh, deeply involved in global things. Your family's got a place in Bulgaria. My family doesn't, but I do. Yeah, yes. you, you do. <laughs> yes. Yep. Uh, global affairs have always been a passion of mine. Um, and yeah, I, I believe it originated, I would say, especially my passion for the Balkans. As you know, I used to bother you and the team about doing doing more, doing more interviews and coverage of the Balkan region. Uh, yeah, after college, um, I just – I'd never really traveled much abroad. And uh, Bulgaria was the first place that said I had a job and a place to live. And I had never been there before. That was enough for me. <laughs> and it was in the late 90s, um, which it turns out was a pretty incredible time to be there uh, in that country. You know, the fall of communism was still less than a decade old. Um, there was still a lot of hope and optimism uh, among a lot of the young people especially that a new day and a new economy was coming and it was uh, kind of had the feeling of, I don't know, the Bulgarians would like to say, you know, like the 60s in America at that time. Do you still have a place in Bulgaria? I sure do. I sure do. In fact, I, uh, well, you're not sure when you're going to air this, so I'm going in next week. But, <laughs> but yes, I, I certainly do have a place. It's in a village um, in northern Bulgaria where no one can find me. <laughs> That's terrific. <laughs> a lot of people get away to Michigan, and you get away to Bulgaria. <laughs> oh, look, it's, a, it's strange. I think my family looks at me weird. My friends, even my Bulgarian friends, think it's kind of weird. But, you know, it was just, it's, it's this place that you know, was really important to me in my life, uh, sort of a coming-age moment. And um, it's both foreign and familiar now. And it's just a place where I can go um, to reconnect with old friends and, and, quite frankly, get out of the United States. There you go. <laughs> I think it's, a, it's important to have a perspective outside of our culture about what's going on here. Uh, I wanted to ask you about the things that you did during Worldview that, you, um, that were memorable for you. Well, 
Uh, where to start, Jerome? I mean, I was with you for two years. Uh, it was 2011 to 2013, and if you think back, at least when I was an intern and then transitioned into a producer, it was it was like we were in the middle of everything. Um, we had the Arab Spring. I remember talking to folks in Tahir Square, as you could hear the chanting in the background. It gave me goosebumps recording some of those interviews. Um, covering Syria, I think um, we we were pretty passionate about covering Syria especially yeah. and had identified that Syria was probably the place that was going to experience some of the most upheaval during the Arab Spring. And dare I say, for most of the Syrian people, we were right. Um, I still have the, the box of soap that uh, some leaders in the Syrian diaspora in Chicago – gave us for thanking us for our early coverage and attention to yep. to what was happening there. Um, Fukushima happened, if I didn't mention that. Fukushima, uh, you know, the earthquake and the subsequent tsunami and nuclear power crisis. Um, you did your first piece on radio? Exactly. My first piece on radio was the 25th anniversary of the Chernobyl meltdown. Now it's become much more popular with the HBO show. Um, but there I found a, uh, a family in Ukrainian village, go figure, in Chicago. Uh, it actually still is inhabited by many Ukrainians. Yep. <laughs> um, and found a mother and their two now adult daughters who um, were living in Kiev, which was not far away um, from the Chernobyl disaster. And just about their story of having to leave the country and leaving their shoes piled up at the train station. And, you know, you see those photos of irradiated shoes, children's shoes piled up at, at train stations, and it's pretty haunting. And so are the photos, if you look at the exclusion area now. Uh, and I'm still in touch with one of the daughters. Uh, that, that's awesome. That you, you made a real connection there. Oh, we, we did. We did, yep. Um, and so I, I still keep in touch with her every, every couple times a year. I'm talking with former producer Joe Lindstroth, and we're just chatting up uh, things he remembers about Worldview. It's our 25th anniversary. And I wanted to ask um, about something that you did, which I thought was great. Um, the Global Activism series was something I always thought people should copy. I thought we should copy it for Chicago things and um, never ended up doing that. But you ended up copying it in Michigan and, and taking it and giving it a Michigan flavor. I sure did. You know, uh, the weekly Global Activism segment and then subsequently the Global Activism Expo Right. Every year had such a turnout. There was clearly um, an interest and a passion for people, grassroots efforts on the ground to, to make change. And that's what I think you tapped into. And so um, when I left BEZ to start a new daily um, news magazine program um, in Lansing, Michigan, um, I created a segment inspired by or completely copying <laughs> global activism called Neighbors in Action. That was so great. I was so – you called me and said, hey, I won this award for this uh, series that uh, modeled on global activism. I exactly. Was great. Yep, yep. And, and that's where, uh, you know, it was just covering the Lansing area, and it, but it was similar in every way. Uh, had listeners nominate uh, people in their community who are making the world a better place. And so we would feature various nonprofits, everything from, you know, hospice organizations to, you know, children's uh, autism awareness uh, organizations. And I think what it also allowed me to do that I saw is to bring um, first-person stories on to the radio. So we would always get, you know, the executive director of this nonprofit, but I would always ask for bring someone – who benefits from your work, who can talk about their own experience. And I think you get people on to share their um, life experiences about living with a severe mental health issue, um, dealing with uh, finding palliative care for their loved ones. And that just, you know, I think not only makes great radio, but kind of increases um, the connection and empathy that you might have for that certain issue for the people. Joe, you had a role in naming Weekend Passport. I did. I did. I believe, if I recall right, Alexandra Solomon and I were brainstorming this new segment because there's so much to do in Chicago and so many diasporas and cultures and, and ethnicities and religions in Chicago that there's always something going on. And, you know, we thought we need to do a segment. We need to use Nari. And, <laughs> you know, and, and what are we going to call it? And we bounced it around and 
here it comes weekend passport, and I understand you're still you're still using that every yep, Friday. We're, we're going to crash and burn with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Uh, well. I, you, you tell us more about what you do here at Stateside now. I am the executive producer of our daily news magazine show. We are Monday through Friday, uh, one hour a day, three to four. We broadcast to most of the state of Michigan. So we're one of the few publications of any medium that covers um, the state in a statewide lens. Um, and it, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, Michigan is a uh, uh, a heck of a state to be a journalist, which kind of inversely means it's a heck of a state to also be a human <laughs> in yeah. sometimes uh, not positive ways. But there's just, a, I think, a lot happening in Michigan that seem to be bellwethers for the nation, whether you're talking about you know, the largest municipal bankruptcy, the Flint water crisis. We have a huge PFAS contamination issue, but I think every community does. Michigan just seems to be on the forefront of locating them. Uh, the charter school movement, uh, municipal finance in general, um, you know, there, there's just a lot of issues, Great Lakes issues, environmental issues. There's just so much to cover in Michigan and such a diverse state that it's, it's, it, it keeps you busy. All right, Joe, what are your biggest regrets about becoming a journalist? Uh, the biggest regrets <laughs> about coming a journalist? Do you regret this whole thing? Was this, <laughs> was this career divergence worth it? You know, uh, it was, of course. Yes, it was. Did, did you hear that pause? Take that pause out. No. You know, it, it was worth it. It was worth it. I, I, I don't know if there are necessarily any regrets that I have. I think, you know, when you're a journalist, you don't turn it off. And um, in certain news cycles, you have to stare into the sun while others get to look away. And I think after a while, sometimes that can take its toll. So, you know, you have to um, develop self-care. Like Jerome, you bike to work and back Absolutely. every day. That is part of my meditative practice. Exactly. I run and do <laughs> other things um, to, to take a break from the never-ending, ceaseless news cycle. Well, congratulations, Joe Linstroth. It's been great seeing you. You're, you're like one of the friendliest guys on the planet, and I remember seeing you all the time. Jerome... It is uh, beyond an honor to actually be a guest on this show after all those years working to book your guests. It, <laughs> it really is. And um, I'm really sad to, to hear that Worldview will be coming to an end. But I know at least the time when I was there that you've made an incredible mark. The show has made an incredible mark on um, people and communities well beyond Chicago. And it's something that you should be incredibly proud of. I know I'm proud to be a part of it. Thank you. That was Joe Lindstroth. He's the executive producer of Stateside on Michigan Radio, and he's a former Worldview producer. We'll uh, talk with a few more Worldview producers as things go on the next couple months. Coming up after the break, we'll find out about the Sarabi Ensemble's Global Peace Tour. Stay with us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times, you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so... No one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown.
That's a little taste of the Sarabi Ensemble. They were in our studios earlier this year, and they're back again. And the Sarabi Ensemble is a musical and dance group that aims to connect cultures and create positive energy. And earlier this year, they created a lot of it when they brought their art message to Vietnam, Portugal, Spain, Senegal. It was called the Global Peace Tour, and they're going to debrief with us about how the Global Peace Tour went. They've got a couple performances coming up that are going to reflect on what happened during the Global Peace Tour. And uh, with us is Greg Nagard. He is a native Chicagoan who is the bassist with the organization. Hello. Great to to see you. You too. Uh, Masamba Diop is here. He was the host of the Sarabi Ensemble when they were in Senegal. It is great to have you. Good morning. And uh, David Fink is here. He was the Vina Valet during the tour. <laughs> Good to have a title. <laughs> he was the, also the founder of the Acorn Theater in Three Oaks, Michigan, where the Sarabi Ensemble will perform on Sunday and uh, have some conversation about the Global Peace Tour. And uh, also here is Carlo Basile, who plays the flamenco guitar with the ensemble. It is great to see you, Carlo. Thanks for having us back. Explain for people who don't know anything about the Sarabi Ensemble what you are, because I was going to try to list the conglomeration of instruments, and I, it get, gets a little complicated. Well, it's a, it's a cultural fusion of, of Indian, uh, Spanish flamenco, Arabic, African. So we try to put it together, and uh, we have a, kind of a collective idea where artists could come in and we can collaborate in different ways. And uh, it just seemed part of our mission that we should reach out a little bit, especially given uh, some of the the turbulent times we're in right now. Like, can we do something positive and bring a message not just, um, you know, um, locally, but 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 do something internationally. So that's what this was all about. And the group uh, brought different artists who joined us on the tour, and we reflected the instruments of those different cultures that I just mentioned. Uh, Greg, you were on the tour, and the tour was Vietnam, Spain, Portugal, Senegal. Or do you have a favorite uh, experience you'd like to share with people? Uh, if I had to choose one. Um, we were playing at a wonderful theater in southern Portugal, and it was a great show. We played really well. The audience, the house was packed, uh, sort of a small theater, maybe 500 to 1,000 people. And at the end of the show, um, after our encores, the entire audience um, got up and said, you know, thank you so much. You know, we're going to sing a song for you. And every single person in that audience sang this traditional uh, Portuguese song for us, like verse after chorus after verse after chorus for 10 minutes, you know, as their sort of thank you for to us. And it was one of the most, uh, you know, I was almost in tears. It was just such a beautiful thing and such a wonderful gesture. And I think that that really, for me, summed up um, the reaction and the reception that we had in so many different places um, from people that we were performing with and people who were in audiences um, seeing Sarabi perform, that just the people were very generous um, and wanted not only to thank us for our performance, but to participate and give us something back. Masamba Diop was the host in Senegal. He is a master of the talking drum and has performed on the soundtrack of Black Panther with Baba Mal and lots of other people. And you're here for the performances uh, as well. You're uh, here in this country. What, uh, how was everybody received in Senegal? What was it like? Uh, Senegal is a country, is a African country, but uh, they have a very deep musicians over there, mm. very intelligent musicians, very open musicians. Why I come here to play with uh, this guy uh, in a Shrabi ensemble in, in, in Chicago. I play with every many different artists in the United States. I play with uh, Habi Hunk, uh, James Brown, uh, Carlos Santana, <laughs> Stevie Wonder. Angelique, many, 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 many. I cannot say that all, all of them ni- uh, right now. But uh, Senegal, I can just can say, say to Senegal is a country, musicians very open, very popular, and very kind of musicians in the world. So the shows in, in Senegal were, were like what for you, Carlo? Um, it was really special. Uh, Masamba was just telling me they they were they hadn't seen some of those instruments though, yeah. right? And mm-hmm. they were asking, when are these guys coming back? And so that's like really special to have you know uh, this culture that we respect so much to go there and then to have that kind of a reception. So 
um, I think it, it went both ways. It went really well. And I, we were just talking about, okay, when are we going to bring the whole group back there? Yeah. <laughs> we're just talking today. It was probably the Vena they'd never seen, right? And that's, uh, that's where David's role came in so crucial. <laughs> crucial, as, yeah. As, he had to get the Vena out of customs or wherever it was <laughs> we got into Senegal. Yeah. Absolutely. Got to bribe, bribe somebody to get the Vena. <laughs> yeah, the Vena, Vena is a gigantic thing. I, I think people, if you see a picture of it, it doesn't do it justice how large it is. Mm-hmm. It's it, very large. It is like six foot long and it's big and heavy. It was often sticking out of car windows as we're going from gig to gig, just hoping nobody <laughs> would clip it um, on the road. Uh, why did you want to do this, David, and uh, tag along and see what was going on and what this, uh, the whole Global Peace Tour was going to be like? Well, I've, I've worked with pretty much all these musicians various times through the years, through my 17 years at the Acorn Theater. And uh, they invited me. And if you have an opportunity to do something you've never done before, do it. You have the experience. So do you, I could do, do it, f- so I did. Do you have a favorite memory of it? I have a lot of favorite memories. Um, one would be in Vietnam, we collaborated with a group of local musicians and dancers. And it wasn't really a show for the public. It was really a show for us to work together. Uh, we performed, then they performed then we did some stuff together. We did O Susanna, which everybody knew, with all these instruments. And a lot of the instruments, Vietnamese instruments, were things I've never seen before. And afterwards, even though there was no common language, we shared dance steps. The dancers were working together. The musicians were teaching each other how to play their instruments and showing them how they work. And just with the language of music and dance, it was just a transcendent moment for me. Uh, you know, I saw some pictures. Rick Bayless was with you in Vietnam. Is yeah, that what? Happened? Yeah, you know, uh, Rick and Deanne are so supportive of of local theater, and um, they had come out to see a few shows uh, last year. And I, and I said, Rick, you know, if you like this, we're going to be in Vietnam. He's like, really, Vietnam? He's like, you know, that's one stop I've always wanted to make. So I said, well, well, come on, we'll give you a food tour. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a couple of my friends from Hanoi, who you know, I've I've made a few trips to Hanoi before. So we we organized this uh, this tour, and not only did Rick support our work, but he was able to come with Deanne and his daughter and her husband, and uh, we had a nice time there, and, and you'll see his head peeking in some of the performance videos, because he was definitely enjoying it as well. We're talking with the Sarabi Ensemble about their global peace tour. It was earlier this year, and they went to Vietnam, Portugal, Spain, uh, and Senegal, and we haven't heard anything about Spain. Was Spain okay, Carlos? Well, not only was it okay, but for me personally, you know, I started studying guitar there uh, in 98. I, I had a master's degree in classical guitar, but I wanted to study some flamenco guitar, and the place that I landed was Cordoba, and so we ended up playing a performance at the University of Cordoba, like just steps away from the mosque. So for Ronnie Malley with his Arabic background, this was very important for us to be in this place and to give a performance. And even though we were jet lagged and even though we were a little cranky, we got up there. We had just flown in from Singapore. We got up oh. there and it just went really, really well. And everything was magical. I thought it was a, a really well-received performance by the people from Spain. And for me, that was like, whoa, this is the place I started and the place that I've always instilled totally respect from, for some of the best guitarists in the world come from there. And so to be able to, to be on a stage there and to have it go so well was just a highlight for me personally. Uh, did this work to recharge your batteries about uh, life? Because there's a lot of things going on in this country, and I know you were inspired because uh, things were getting you down and you wanted to do something that would get you up. Did this work to recharge yourself collectively. Um, what do you think, Greg? Yeah. Um, the, in general, yes. Um, you know, traveling um, is always hard work, but especially, you know, traveling as a musician and performing, you know, that definitely takes some energy out of you. But I, I think that we were able to represent um, Chicago to a few places in the world um, in a really positive way. Um, maybe in a way that a lot of people don't see Chicago or the United States. I think we were representing diversity and collaboration in a time politically where, you know, our foreign policy and our immigration policies definitely don't seem inclusive or collaborative. Um, and it just, I mean, the 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 thing that char- that that brought me the energy and renewed my 
sort of belief in humanity is just meeting people, um, meeting people in the places where we were and just not being surprised but learning again just how open and wonderful people are all over the world. Anybody else want to weigh in on that? David? Um, yeah. <laughs> I, one of my lessons was there's no such thing as a stranger, only people you haven't figured your connection to yet <laughs> because you always felt like you, you were connected and, and formed these really deep, kind of deeper relationships. We did a, a jam session in Portugal that included a Brazilian drummer that we just met in Portugal yep. as a tourist. Uh, there was a Polish guitarist. There was a Fado singer. There was a a uh -huh. Portuguese guitar player. I mean, it was just the collaboration of all these cultures from different continents, and you get together and you bond and you you create something beautiful. Not just the music, but also the sense of community. A lot of potluck meals. Um, yeah, with the home cooking. And I thought some of the best moments were the ones that were unplanned. Um, when we got to Spain, uh, a friend of mine who helped arrange the concerts said to me, hey, there's, there's this Roma Gitano uh, family, um, and I'm friends with them, and they really, you know, they, they don't always reach out to people, but I'm sure if I talk to them, they might want to have you guys over for a little jam session. And uh, she made it happen, and we were in, you know, the south of Spain, and we were welcomed by this, by this Gitano family, and they were so welcoming in terms of the music, but also just in terms of being warm with us and seeing the relationship between the folks from India and the you know this, this group of people that may have come from you know the the centuries back from from that part of the world. So it's really it was really an interesting moment and totally unplanned. What were there any kind of downsides or tough moments? Uh, I know that, <laughs> I know that, you know I mean there's always uh, don't all musicians have visa problems? Isn't that the whole <laughs> thing uh, about? Well, and yeah. that's uh, one of the things that were has maybe inspired us at this point too. You know, uh, Keenery and uh, Sarah have Indian passports, and so they were not able to transfer in Singapore with just between terminals. So we literally on the spot had to reroute them from Vietnam uh, through Istanbul to get to Spain for the performances the next day. We, we made it work. It happened. Uh, Masamba wasn't able to get a visa in time to join us in Spain. He was supposed to join us in Spain as well. And so I think, you know, having an American passport, we do have uh, a lot of freedoms. And I know some of the other countries are starting to catch up to that now and are starting to say, okay, Americans are going to need visas now too. Maybe we've taken some of that for granted, but I we noticed it while we were traveling. And I think... Um, some of these things that happened along the way uh, will come out in our new work. We're already working on some pieces that re reflect some of this. And now I, you've got several gigs coming up here in the next week or so. Right. Exp let's knock them back. I, I, there's, you're going to be in Holland, Michigan uh, uh, yes, on we Saturday? Have, there's, on Saturday we'll be at the International Festival in Holland, Michigan, which is at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Oh, yes. On Sunday we'll be at the Acorn Theater uh, with David hosting, uh, taking some questions and doing a workshop performance at 2 p.m. Eastern time, right? And and those, what, what does that mean, David? You're going to host. You're going to do. You're, what, what are you going to do with them? Well, I'm going to uh, kind of ask some questions and um, try to have the questions transition into music and take questions from the audience. He's going to be like Jerome, basically. Oh, fun. <laughs> only, <laughs> only with more music and longer <laughs> and stuff. The, the big performance is coming up at City Winery, though, on Wednesday, the 21st. And we'll have some pre-show questions. We'll, we'll play the video from the from the tour. And then we also have another artist coming in from Chennai, India. Uh, Raghavan Sai will be joining Masamba. And this will be an interesting, you know, India versus Senegal percussion jam to start the show. And then we'll, we'll get into the, some, some of the material that we actually played on the tour. So we have new material to play on this show. And that's at City Winery. It's an all-ages show on Wednesday. Uh, we'll probably start around 740, but the actual performance music starts at 8 p.m. Well, that sounds fantastic, and you get to uh, be with a world-class talking drum player who has played yes. with everybody in the world. Mm -hmm. um, all sorts of, well, you know, we, we haven't had Sarah here, but she's the founder of the group, and she uh, does this beautiful vena uh, that is fantastic. It's, uh, it's great to see you guys whenever I hear you. It will be a tapestry of sounds and a collection of cultures. 
Now, why don't we introduce some of the new music that uh, you brought us here? Uh, what, what's the? This is a Vietnam. Uh, uh, well, this piece, piece. This piece is actually from the CD. It's a piece that uh, continues to transition as we perform it. And I, I wrote this piece a couple of years ago, uh, actually to teach. I was doing a workshop in Vietnam, and so there are sections of it which are very easy to teach, and then there are sections of it which are more complex. And I think we're going to hear some of it going out. And again, this is a piece we played it in Hanoi, which it's called Hanoi Phu. And, and so the, our friend, when he heard it from Hanoi, he's like, you have to play this for the orchestra tomorrow. I'm going to set this up. And so we played it for the or- Vietnamese orchestra, and they loved it. So, so super cool. Well, uh, fantastic. We'll hear the song here in a second. Uh, thanks, Carlo Basile, Masamba Diop, who came from Senegal with the talking drum. Thanks also to David Fink, who is the founder of the Acorn Theater in Three Oaks, where you'll be playing on Sunday. And Greg Nagard is the bassist of the Sarabi Ensemble, and you can check out their Facebook page and for some of the details about their events. And uh, it's been great seeing you guys. Thanks for having a global peace tour and doing a global peace tour. And thanks to Steve Bynum and Julian Haida for producing today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience. I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.